You know, it doesn't matter who you are this morning or where you are this morning or what you've done this morning. Christ conquered the grave, and He has what you need. And we're here this morning to enjoy that reality. We are here this morning to celebrate that reality. And that provides me the opportunity to wish all of you a very, very happy Easter. Isn't it good to be together today? For the benefit of our guests, my name is Dave, Dave Harvey, and I'm the pastor of preaching here at Four Oaks. And I want to just extend a special welcome to those of you that have never been here before. This is your first time. We are really, really grateful that you chose to be with us, particularly on, on Easter morning. And uh, might help you to know a little bit about what we've been about over the past few months in our Sunday services. So we've been in a series on the book of Acts. If you're, if you're not familiar with Bible books, the, the, the book of Acts is in the New Testament. And it's simply a description of what happened as the church began to expand with the gospel. And we've been in that series since September of, of, of last year. But what we're doing is we're kind of hitting pause on that series so that today we can begin a short series that really just has our guests in view. In fact, if you're here and this is your first time, you've just been coming out for for a couple of weeks, we've really created a three-week series for you. And the series is titled Beyond the Shadowlands. Now, if that term shadowlands sounds familiar at all to you, it may be because you're familiar with some of the writings of of C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis used the term shadowlands to describe life on earth. And there's a quote in one of the last books that he wrote in the Chronicles of Narnia, where at the very end of that book, Aslan, the main character who's symbolic of of Jesus, says the following things to, to some of the children. He says, quote, there was a railway accident. Your father and mother And all of you are, as you used to call it in the Shadowlands, dead. The term is over. The holidays have begun. The dream is over. This is the morning. And so we've titled the series Beyond the Shadowlands because we want to look together at what happens to a person after they die, after they go beyond the Shadowlands. And we're actually going to begin that adventure right here this morning, this, this fine Easter morning, as we look together at what happened to Jesus after he died. So the title of this morning's message is Going Home to Heaven, and it's, it's drawn from Hebrews chapter 10. So if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and open it to Hebrews chapter 10. If you don't have one, no problem. The passage will appear on the screens up top. And I'm going to read beginning in verse 11 through verse 14. Verse 11. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered For all time, a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single 
offering. He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Let's pray together. Lord, we are so grateful that you have risen and that that, that's what unites us here this morning. That's what brings us together and that's what allows us to celebrate you with great hope for the future. And Lord, we pray you would inspire our hope today as we study this passage in Hebrews. Lord, give us understanding. We recognize there is no understanding apart from you helping us. So we ask you to please help us, to please grant us understanding and comprehension. In Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever considered that the Easter story typically has only one setting, one stage, if you will? And that's really what happened on earth. The events always seem to be talked about from what was going on on earth. And so we hear about the women bringing spices to the tomb, but the stones rolled away and they don't know how that's happened. Or how Peter races to the tomb, but John happens to write in his gospel that he beat Peter to the tomb and it was a, as if it was a foot race and he arrived there first. Or we read about Thomas who said, unless I see the nail marks in his hand or touch the wound in his side, I will not believe. In other words, this entire story that is so filled with drama, this entire story is told from the vantage point of what happened here on earth. Now, Hebrews chapter 10, 10 kind of changes that up, changes the scenery, it changes the lens on the camera, because it escorts us beyond the shadowlands into heaven, and into heaven specifically after the resurrection. So here in Hebrews chapter 10, we go higher, we get a wider view of the events that are following the resurrection. We kind of go to the top of a mountain. I mean, last week I was in the hometown of Pastor Paul, the, the, the thriving metropolis of Chattanooga, Tennessee, with its sprawling airport boasting five entire gates, which makes Tallahassee look like O'Hare, doesn't it? But I was walking, you know, around the city, and I, I could really appreciate the, the breadth, the beauty of the city, the, the world's longest pedestrian bridge world's steepest incline. There's just some beautiful things around that city. So I, I, but I called Pastor Paul. I said, Paul, I'm, I'm in Chattanooga. What should I do? And he said, oh, you got to go up to Lookout Mountain. Go up there. Check it out. You'll see a beautiful view. And so I was walking around the city, and all of that's pretty impressive when you're walking through there. But then I go up to the top of, of Lookout Mountain. And standing atop of Lookout Mountain, it just really expands one's vision of the city. And there's stuff going on up there that isn't going at all down below. I mean, up there you're seeing jets landing, you're seeing birds flying, you're seeing the, the, ta- the uh, Tennessee River stretching northward off to the left. And the whole of Tennessee is kind of stretching out before you. And perched atop Lookout Mountain, you get, you get this wide vista. You, you see things up above that you don't see below. That's Hebrews 10. That's what ha- what's happening in Hebrews 10. Hebrews 10 takes us up the mountain into heaven, and here we are provided this wider vista. Here we are shown events that are unseen from earth. 
And for the people that the writer is writing to, that couldn't be more important and it couldn't be more timely. Because the writer of Hebrews is addressing a group of Jewish believers whose angle on life is far from up on top of the mountain. In fact, they are dug deep in a ditch at this period of their life. Because they have been through a persecution about 15 years prior. But now there is a cloud of opposition that is gathering on the horizon. And they are experiencing these strong temptations They are tempted to abandon Christ. They are tempted to fall away as these threats of hardship are stoking their fear, as this anxiety is preying on their mind. They don't know what the future holds. They don't understand all that's taking place. They don't know why it's taking place, and they don't think they're going to make it. Maybe some of you here this morning can relate to those Jewish believers. Maybe you're in a season right now where you are under a cloud, where your fears are preying upon you in the same way, and you feel vulnerable, you feel afraid. It's hard for you to imagine going on, moving forward. Yeah, it's spring outside, but you've got nothing but winter in your heart right now. And so the writer of Hebrews pens this letter to be an encouragement to them, but to us as well. And in penning this letter, he's seeking to make one simple point. And the point is this, Jesus is worth it. Jesus is worth it. This entire letter is written to basically exalt in Jesus and what he's done and why what he's done qualifies him to help us in the moments of our deepest needs. And it's in this section in Hebrews chapter 10 that he escorts us beyond Lookout Mountain, all the way to heaven. And it's all the way to heaven right after Easter to see what the resurrection actually accomplished for us and to connect the resurrection and what it accomplished to the sufferings and the challenges and the anxieties and the fears that we experience in whatever we're going through. And what the writer of Hebrews does is he starts with a series of of contrasts. And these contrasts are just beating home one simple transformational truth. And I want to say it this way to you. The truth is that Easter replaces the many with the one. Easter replaces the many with the one. Now, I want to explain to you what I mean by that. There's there's two different sides of this. First one is not many priests, but one. Not many priests, but one. Okay, for a second, let's just stay on the top of Lookout Mountain. And let's, let's peer out at the big picture that the writer of Hebrews is addressing. And it's really the big picture of creation that continues to be addressed in the day in which we live. For you see, when Adam and Eve disobeyed God in the Garden of Eden, when they ate the tree of the tree in the middle of the garden and they disobeyed God, then Scripture says sin entered the world and death through sin. Which means that there was a radical corruption that became a part of human existence. We were broken. We were fallen. And that radical corruption was embedded in the hearts of men and women. And you know what that radical corruption did? It created a bent. 
It created a bent that was passed on from Adam and Eve to their children, to their children, all the way down to us and our children. It was transmitted to every human being. Theologians call that bent original sin. It's basically why you never have to teach your toddler to say no. Because no is embedded in their heart. No to authority is bound up in the heart of a child. Yes to authority is not bound up in the heart of a child. That goes all the way back to Adam and Eve. And part of the effect of that bent that is part of human existence is that we no longer desire a relationship with God. We, in fact, want to be our own gods. And so sin came and it screwed up the entire system. It, it, it polluted all of creation. So as the Old Testament continues to unfold, we see God gives a law. And with this law comes a system of dealing with people's sins. The system was that these priests would offer sacrifices regularly, day in and day out, sacrifices for sins. I didn't ask you to read this earlier, but in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 1, it says, For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. So the priests were men that were chosen by man, but appointed by God, and they were appointed by God to do this, to offer sacrifices for our sins. And what the priests would do is the people would bring them these, not just animals, but the best of the animals that were out there. They called them unblemished meaning they were unpolluted, they were unstained, they, they didn't have any defect in them. And this is what the, the priests would do. The priests would kill those animals on the altar, and the blood of those animals would go spilling out all over the altar. I mean, you hear that and you think, that is nasty. Why, why would they do that? Well, see, what, what happened was God offered a kind of temporary forgiveness for the continuing breaking of the law that human beings did. He offered a temporary forgiveness through the shedding of blood. That's why in verse 11 it says, and every high priest and every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, repeatedly the same sacrifices. See, the system was set up, the system for the priesthood was set up this way. There were, there were 24 orders of priests, which meant there were literally hundreds of priests. And these hundreds of priests, you know what they did? These hundreds of priests would offer sacrifices day by day by day by day. Look at verse 11 again. And every priest stands daily, stands daily. The operative word there is Daily, all day, every day, all day, every day, many days by many priests. And not not only was the priest always doing that, but, but the priest was also always standing. See, that word is there intentionally. That priest, every priest stands daily. And they always stood because they were never finished. 
See, the standing represents the fact that the priests, what they were doing, was never finished. It was repetitive. It was repetitive. It was something they had to do all the time. There's just this sense as you begin to read the text and you remember back to the Old Testament that there's this frenetic energy going on, this activity where they always have to be offering offerings. They always have to be offering sacrifices because sins are always being committed. They have to stay the hand of execution by God. And so they always have to be doing something. The standing symbolizes the lack of rest. I don't know if you can relate to this, but you know, when I get anxious, I immediately stand. In fact, I immediately stand and I begin to pace around. Typically, if I'm sitting, I'm resting. If I'm standing, well, then I've got problems or my kids got problems or some, there's problems somewhere because I'm thinking about or I'm trying to solve the problem or I actually am the problem. And that's why I'm standing and I'm talking. Listen to this. Many priests had to stand daily, had to work daily, offering sacrifices daily. Why? Because the repetition was necessary. See, because God is holy and God is righteous, God is obligated to judge sin. Sin cannot come into the presence of God without it being immediately judged. Because we are sinners, we're working in sins all the time. And so there is an immediate problem. I mean, listen to this. Think about how bad sin must be if in the Old Testament, these priests had to stand daily. And each and every hour, multiple sacrifices had to be made 24 hours a day before the offering simply to stay the hand of execution, simply to keep God from pouring out his wrath. What God did was he arranged a way to postpone his wrath. He, he arranged a way to have a kind of hourly stay of execution. And the answer came through many priests each and every day. But listen, don't miss this nugget. Look at verse 11. At the very end of verse 11, he says, quote, But it can never take away sins. In other words, this whole system, all it did was prevent God from pouring out wrath. It didn't resolve the problem of sins. See, Easter points us to this higher reality that because of Easter, because of the resurrection, the many priests that were constantly offering sacrifices are replaced by one priest who offered a permanent sacrifice. Which leads us to my next point. So what was not many priests, but one. Second point is not many sacrifices, but one. Now look at verse 12. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins. Look at how it's echoed in verse 14. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Notice how that theme of a single sacrifice, not many, but a single sacrifice, not many, but one. Notice how that's repeated in this text. Now, let me explain to you why. Because one sacrifice means first that it was perfect, that it was a perfect sacrifice. See, the whole sacrificial system was based upon the offering of that which was, quote, unblemished. But though it was unblemished, in other words, on the outside, it was un unblemished. It looked and appeared like it was fine. It was still defiled by fallenness. 
It was still an animal that came from a fallen world that, that had the same problems of, of, of man that, that we have, that came from a broken world. So unblemished just signified something. It was a, it was a symbol for something. It symbolized a pure sacrifice, but that's all it did, is that it signified something. They weren't actually pure, which is why every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. See, here's the dilemma. For a sacrifice to be acceptable to actually atone for sin, the sacrifice itself had to be perfect. For a sacrifice to be acceptable to a holy God that could take away sins, the sacrifice had to be perfect. In order for the sacrifice to be a perfect sacrifice, it had to be untouched by the fall of man. It had to be untouched by what took place under Adam and Eve. It had to be from a different lineage. Enter Jesus, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, fully God and fully man. Walking the earth as a second Adam. He succeeded where Adam failed. He obeyed where Adam disobeyed. And in doing so, he became this completely different species. He became something that the earth had never before seen. The Lamb of God. The perfect sacrifice who would take away the sins of the world. And yet it's not like he was never tempted because he was tempted just like you and I are tempted. Yet without Sin. I mean, this is spectacular when you think about it. Because this life of total obedience resulted in this this once in a history, once in all of humanity, this once in a lifetime type of sacrifice, a perfect sacrifice. And a perfect sacrifice could accomplish permanently what the other sacrifices could never accomplish. And because of Easter, that's exactly what happened. See, that perfect sacrifice could do what none of those sacrifices, even all the sacrifices being offered day in and day out, all day, each and every hour by many priests. But they couldn't appease the wrath of God. They couldn't forgive sin. They couldn't resolve the problem of our unforgiveness and our bitterness and our fears and our problems. But then the perfect sacrifice came and died and rose on the third day. And now he's going to come back. And when he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found, dressed in his perfect righteousness alone, faultless, we'll stand before the throne. On Christ, the solid rock will stand. It was the perfect sacrifice that created a perfect blessing and gave us his righteousness so that when God looks down, he no longer sees us in our fallenness. He sees us in the righteousness of Christ because it was a perfect sacrifice. So Easter, in Easter, because of Easter, the many are replaced by the one, the many priests, the many sacrifices. And that means first that it was a perfect sacrifice, but it means something else too. And this is where it really gets down to what the, what the Hebrews are struggling with. And this may get right to the very thing that you came in here this morning wrestling with, the thing that was occupying your mind this morning as you were in the shower or kept you up last night. And that is that sacrifice was 
permanent. It was a permanent sacrifice. Now remember, the worth of the Old Testament system was not that it worked well, but that it signified something else that would come. It it symbolized that somewhere in the future would come to them a permanent arrangement where God would permanently address the problem of sin. In fact, the writer of Hebrews kind of gets at that by using the idea of of a shadow and the substance. Shadow and the substance. So he says the sacrifices of verse 11, those sacrifices where every priest stands daily at at service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, those sacrifices were only ever a copy of the authentic. They were only ever a shadow that announced that something else would arrive in the future. The substance would arrive in the future. They were a shadow announcing the arrival ultimately of a person. They were like a, they were like a holy sonogram from heaven. If, if you're here and you're married and you've had kids, or you, you know what a sonogram is. A sonogram is a picture of a person yet to come. But they weren't like that when we had our first kid. I mean, we had our first kid like back in 1987, and they, you, they handed you a sonogram, and it looked like, it looked like an x-ray. You know, it was just a, a black sheet with a cloud of white right in the middle of it, and they hand it to me, and I'm thinking, you know, what am I looking at here? Is this a catcher's mitt? Is this a ham loaf? What, what are we looking at here? She said, no, 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 you're having a boy. I'm thinking, boy, where do you see a boy on here? I typically know what distinguishes a boy from a girl when I look at a picture, and I'm not seeing any of that on here. January 15th, 1987, my son was born with an old school sonogram. The the shadow of the sonogram that we had prior to his birth pointed forward to the reality that a son was coming. Now pay attention for a second. See, the problem of the Hebrews is something I think we can all relate to. They're under great duress. They feel pressure. They feel pain. They feel betrayal. They feel abandoned. They're uncertain about the future. And because all of those things are in play, they want to go back. They want to go back to the past, back to the law, back to the Jewish customs, back to the, to the sonogram, you know? I mean, imagine how odd it would be if in times of stress I was saying to Kim, Kim, I found I just want to have more time to be with the sonogram. I'm more drawn to the sonogram. Dear, I, I've missed that little x-ray, that, that dark silhouette that brings me so much comfort. I want to go back to the sonogram. I, I will admit that once they were teenagers, there were many times I wanted to go back to the sonogram. But you hear that, and you think any sane person is going to think, Dave, Dave has left reality. Dave is with the elves in Middle Earth. We don't know if he's going to be coming back or not. Because the sonogram is only ever a shadow. It's not the substance. The sonogram is not the point. The sonogram points to someone else. The sonogram announces that a person is coming. A guy named B.F. Westcott said of this passage, In themselves, the sacrifices gave no pleasure to God. Their value was in what they represented. Now, I know you might be sitting there and say, well, Dave, that's all that's good and well, and i got a question for you. you know, this is all fascinating, but did anybody tell you that it's Easter? 
What does this have to do with Easter? Here's the point that I'm trying to make. Easter reminds us that the one sacrifice from the one high priest was accepted by God. And I love the way that's portrayed in verse 12 where it says, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, listen to this, he sat down. He sat down at the right hand. This is what's taking place after the resurrection. You want to know what took place after the resurrection? Jesus went to heaven. What happened in heaven? He sat down. The fact that Christ is even in the presence of God means the plan worked. God could never allow something holy in his presence. Christ is there in his presence. The plan worked, but it doesn't just stop there. It says Christ was seated, and Christ seated in the presence of God means the sacrifice was accepted. The plan worked. The strategy was was correct. Now, I want you to just roll these words over in your mind for a little bit because they are bursting with significance. He sat down. Think about that. He sat down at the right hand. And I hope that truth grabs you in the way that it's intended to grab you, grabs you in the same way that it grabbed the Hebrew believers who read this for the first time. Because he sat down means so much more than just some action that Christ took when he entered into heaven. He sat down means that our forgiveness is no longer dependent upon a bunch of old guys standing day and night who need to remember to offer sacrifices on our behalf. Because he sat down. He sat down means that Christ now works for us. It means we have an advocate in heaven. That means we have somebody in heaven who each and every day, each and every hour, each and every minute, each and every second is pulling for us, is representing our needs, is appealing for us. He sat down. It's April in Tallahassee. Session is on right now in Tallahassee. You can't toss a rock in any direction and not hit a lobbyist somewhere. A lobbyist is a person of influence who knows how to make deals. See, he sat down means we have a lobbyist in heaven. means we have somebody representing us who understands our needs, who's always there, closing the deal, passing the bill, making sure the strategy works. And he is seated, according to the writer of Hebrews, to ever live to make intercession for us, always aware of our needs, always appealing, always advocating, always lobbying on our behalf. He sat down. See, he sat down means the priesthood was fulfilled. He sat down means the standing is over. He sat down means that Christ is now, let let me just use the words of verse 14, perfecting for all time those who are being sanctified. You know what that means? That's just another way to say he sat down means that Christ is up there making sure that you finish the race. That's what that means. Making sure that you have everything you need to follow him home, to follow him to heaven. Listen, if you're here this morning and like the Hebrews, you are struggling with fear, 
or anxiety. Never expected to be where you were right now. I mean, the dream of the future never took you in this direction. And you're uncertain of what the future holds. This is what you need to know. Christ sat down. And Christ sat down for you, which means you have an advocate in heaven. You have an advocate in heaven who holds you. You have an advocate in heaven who holds you even when you don't hold on to him. Even when you let go, he keeps you. And he sat down means that he's going he's to help you make it. You're not going to go trailing off, spinning out in space. That he's preparing you to follow him home. Now, maybe you're here today and you're, you're a guest. You're, you're a guest and you're, you're raised a Christian or in a Christian church, or maybe you weren't raised a Christian at all and none of this makes sense, but, but you, you feel like there are these questions that are beginning to form. There are questions that are there, little questions that are nagging you like, well, what does this mean for me? Or where do I go with this? Or how do I find my way home? Because I think maybe today you're realizing that, boy, I've never, I've never been aware that there was so much work that went into dealing with the problem of sin. And I want to tell you that the reason that God did so much to deal with the problem of sin is not because sin was some kind of intriguing, beguiling problem for God that he just wanted to solve because he thought that would be a fascinating thing to do. No, God solved the problem of sin because he loves you. He loves you. He loves you so much that he sent his son to die. He loves you so much that he sent his son to rise on the third day. He loves you so much that he sent his son and received him back in heaven as the perfect sacrifice. And he sat down. He loves you this morning. He loves you. So let this Easter be for you a time where the shadow becomes substance. And if you want to know how to walk in that direction, then start with whoever invited you. Start with the person that's sitting next to you. Talk to them. And if you came by yourself and you don't have anybody to talk to, come up and talk to me. I'd love to meet you. I'd love to talk to you. But regardless, let's, let's realize that we serve a Savior who is risen. But we serve a Savior who went to heaven and is seated, which meant the plan was completed. And he's ever sitting there living to make intercession, living to make sure that you will follow him, and that you too will make it home. What a great thing to worship about. So let's worship, freshly moved by the reality today that Easter replaces the many with one.